Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Well, good morning. It is good to be here uh, on this Memorial Weekend. So good to see so many of you. Um, just a, a brief kind of commercial uh, as the weather is changing and as um, we're looking at the summer ahead as a church family. Uh, if you remember last year when COVID hit, like many folks, we went offline for about four or five months. And when we finally resumed, uh, we're trying to figure out the, the safest place to do it. We met across the street in our grass field uh, for a good part of the summer. Uh, some of you drove up in your cars and stayed in your cars and just rolled down the windows. Some of you uh, brought your lawn chairs and sat out on the lawn. But um, that was kind of our first regathering in the season of COVID. Um, and so we were talking about that, and a couple things surfaced. One is, man, why don't we do this every year? Uh, when we were doing it, people from the condos were coming out and listening to the music, and we had people walking down the street uh, and joining us, and uh, especially for people that, eh, they're not sure about this church thing or this Jesus thing. It's a lot less threatening to kind of slide in the back of a field than it is to come into a building. And so I thought, man, what an opportunity to... To, to remove a barrier for people to come and hear the gospel. Uh, so regardless of COVID, we thought, man, we should do this every summer. Um, we didn't know how long it would last as we're still continuing to, to deal with the, the effects of that. Um, while there is hope on the horizon for uh, masks to be removed and all that, we thought, Let, let's do it again. So at the end of June, we're planning uh, to go back across the field uh, for a time. We haven't set uh, how, long, how many weeks we'll do it. Um, there is uh, hope from the governor's office that by the end of June, whether you're inside or outside or any, any place, that uh, masks can be removed and restrictions can be lifted. But we thought uh, maybe a good kind of beginning of that. So that's the plan is in June, especially for those of you that are still online. Um, we hope to gather across the field. Um, so go buy a cheap lawn chair if you can uh, now before they, they fly off the shelves, and, and we'll let you know more about that. But we're excited about being able to gather as a whole church family. Um, we're still looking at options of how we can stream when we're across the street, because that's a little more challenging. Um, so we'll keep you updated on that as well. If you were with us last week, we started a series in uh, the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 uh, through verse 2 and 3, which we'll, we'll read together in just a moment. Um, but for those of you that maybe are not here uh, we're not here last week. Um, I want to just set a little reset, a little of the context uh, for the passage we're about to read. So, first of all, the opening of First Peter and really the theme of First Peter is the salvation of Jesus. How, as Aaron shared just a moment ago, what the what Jesus did for us saved us from our sin. It made us right before God. And this lamb and blood, it, it, it's an allusion to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and how Jesus was the, the spotless and the perfect lamb. And so this idea, this, that, this, this truth that comes through the gospel that we are saved not because of the good things we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us is life-changing. It, it removes all the weight off of our own shoulders to try and attain a certain level of goodness because Jesus attained that for us. But it's also threatening. And we see this throughout the biblical narrative and in our countries, in our world today, that this idea 
that you can't attain a level of goodness, that you can't work for your own salvation. For people that are doing their best to work for that, they don't want to hear that. That's not good news. Uh, I, I can build my own life, my, build my own empire apart from God. I don't need him. And so salvation is both really good news for those that understand their sin, and it is devastating news for people who think that they can just live however they want to live and, and everything will be okay in the end. And so um, what Peter acknowledges in the very opening of his letter is that because of your embrace of this truth of, of the grace of Jesus, some people are going to see you as a threat because this grace also works in your life and changes the way that you live. And so the certain behaviors and ways of living in the culture, uh, they're not compatible with this new Jesus way. And so when you don't live in that way, it's a, it offends people. And it also highlights their own sin, which nobody wants that to be done. And so Peter uh, opens up the letter saying, hey, we have a living hope, Jesus. And in the midst of this suffering, hold on to that hope. And so the end of the, our passage last week in verse 12 was this image that Peter paints of angels in heaven essentially kind of peeking in at the fulfillment of God's word, uh, at, at the promises of God that have come to pass in Jesus, and how that has affected all of us today. So if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the pew in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take one. Um, our name's not on them. We would love for you to have your own Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 3. And before, you, um, before we read this together, um, today's passage starts with a connecting word to last week. So last week, as we talked about this living hope and also this suffering we're going to have to endure because we've trusted Jesus, Peter then uses this connecting word, and you'll see it there in verse 13, Therefore, right? So whenever you see the word therefore, as I've heard somebody say years ago, you have to ask, why is, what, is therefore, what is therefore there for? What does it connect in what is being communicated? And so as we read these, uh, our, our passage today, remember the, what Paul, Peter had previously spoken last week and how that connects with this. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, if, if you've never been to a church that does this, you are going to open your Bible and you are going to read the text for yourself. And then we are going to walk through it together. So go ahead and take a moment. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 2, verse 3. And then we're going to unpack it together. So go ahead and just take a moment to do that. My, my cue that most people are done reading is you start looking up at me. So I'll look for the, for the eyes to rise.
All right. I'm going to be honest. I read this passage over and over and over and over this week. I probably read it 24 times at least uh, as I was studying it and as I was preparing to preach this message. Uh, and I came away thinking as I read this passage, and we could spend a couple hours easy just unpacking this. And I imagine when the, this letter was distributed among all the churches that it, it says it's going to be distributed to, you see at the very beginning of it, that when the letter was distributed, those churches would read it together. They would gather like we're gathering now, and they would sing together, and then they would read it, then they would pray, and they would read it again, and then they would debate about, what did he mean when he said this? And, oh, man, how do we apply that here? And in their cultural and their contextual situation, they probably really wrestled with this uh, in a good way, I think. And uh, so as I was reading this, I'm like, man, we could spend a long time on this. Don't, don't worry, we won't today. Oh, we're going to do a flyover of it. But uh, a couple things I want to point out as we unpack this passage. And, and, and to a certain extent, Peter kind of goes back and forth in it. He, he's, he, one of the things that he uses a lot, and maybe you notice this, is he uses a lot of family language. Did you notice that when you're reading it? Children, father, infant, newborn. He's, he's using this family language and he's lacing it throughout his address. And so that denotes something. That's important to, to note. The other thing that we um, understand is, and we remember, is the context that this was written is these churches were undergoing persecution. They're undergoing suffering. People were not welcoming to this new Jesus way. And so in the midst of, uh, of this kind of hostile culture to the, to the Christians that were there, Peter is exhorting them. He's challenging them to think differently. Um, when I was a younger kid, I, I loved to play sports. I, I played baseball. I played basketball. Uh, one of my favorite sports in high school was tennis. And tennis is a really uh, pretty technical sport. It's, uh, there's lots of types of ways that you grip the racket and the motion that you, you have when you, when you serve. And uh, there's a lot of strategy and angles and all these things. And so I would practice every day for hours a day. And then I would get ready for that match. And I would face my opponent. And I had all the training. And I knew all the things that I had to do. But I also had this other issue, which I had especially when I was younger is I had what's called sports anxiety. It was one thing, I was really good at practice, but it was one thing when it came time to the game and my opponent was across the other way and I could feel myself tighten up. And so the, the serves that I was banging in the, the, across the court all week, all of a sudden they were a little shorter and they were hitting the net. And my arm felt a little stiffer and I couldn't quite get the spin on the ball. And I would overthink things in the moment. And so this anxiety would affect the way that I played the game. It wasn't until my senior year in high school where I said, you know what, win or lose, I just want to have fun. And I, and I was finally able to approach my games just the way that I approach practice. I'm just going to play. The, the reality is for these people that are trying to follow the ways of Jesus is it was easy for them to nod and smile and acknowledge the truth of Jesus when they were together, but as soon as they left that environment and they were in their workplaces and they were in their schools and they were hanging out in their communities, they were faced with a type of anxiety that was based in hostility toward them. Do they really believe 
the teachings of Jesus? And how do they really live those out? And so you can imagine as they left the safety of their gathering, just like we do, that the, the, the challenge to walk out their faith felt sometimes overwhelming. And so with all the family language that Peter uses and in the context of hostility that we know the church was facing, he gives four um, exhortations to those Christians who have plenty of reasons to be anxious in their faith. Now, we use the word exhortation uh, in church, but another word for exhortation would be an appeal or a challenge or, or just an encouragement. And we see those that those words and that tone coming from Peter as he shares these. And so he starts out saying, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Now, he's not talking about alcohol issues here, right? He's talking about a clarity of mind. That with everything that's going on around you, have a clear mind. Like, think rightly when you go out. You know what the truth is. Walk it out. Live it out. And so we see kind of four um, exhortations that, that Paul opens up with. And we see this, this exhortation of having a, a firm uh, hope. Uh, we have this exhortation of having active, being active in holiness, having a reverent fear of God, and of loving each other. And so Peter's saying, how you think matters. And these challenges that he gives are are really connected to the opening statement of the letter. He says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, be obedient to Jesus Christ. In other words, through faith in Jesus, God is doing something spiritual, something supernatural in us that we are also participating in. That's what obedience is. How many of you remember... When you first started walking, took those first steps. Everybody's looking at me like, nope. Right, you didn't, right? You don't remember that. So let me refresh your memory. When you first started walking, you did it because you had a bunch of people around you that were walking. Your parents were walking. And they had probably walked with your hands quite a bit, right? And they had shown you how to do it. And you... Uh, on shaky legs, we're trying to figure it out. And then one day, to the surprise of everybody, you took your first step. You were probably in at your house or at your school, and it was a nice, soft floor, and you took those first steps, and it was celebrated. But then eventually you had to figure out how to take those same steps on uneven ground outside. I remember my firstborn, it was like we were so excited he could, he could walk so then we went to the park, and all of a sudden, he forgot how to walk again. You take one step, and he'd wipe out. And for some reason, uh, he's up there running the slides right now. But my oldest son, Jude, whenever he fell, he fell with his head, like leading with his head. He forgot he had arms, and every single time he fell, it was right on the forehead to the point that we were like, should we put him in a helmet just for his own safety? He's a lot more, uh, more um, coordinated now. So. <clears throat> so then you learn how to walk on even, uneven ground, and eventually you can walk up and down hills, and, and then even you can conquer stairs in your house. And uh, these obstacles, as they came, you had someone show you how to overcome them. They, your parents said, no, no, when you go down the stair, go like this. But eventually, 
As much as they show you how to do that, you have to take those steps yourself. And so when Peter says, it is the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he is doing it for you and through you. He is showing you how to live, but you also have to be obedient. You have to take those steps. And so our faith as Christians is always a supernatural demonstration of the Spirit of God in us, changing our affections, showing us a new way to live, renewing our mind, but we are participants in that. We are not robots. And so it is these two things that we hold in tension. And so Peter speaks to this reality. He says, no matter what's going on right now or what may happen in the future, stay clear-headed. Set your mind on the sanctifying work of the Spirit and then respond to it. Walk it out. And so the first kind of exhortation that he gives is he says, I want you to have a firm hope. Have a firm hope. When you hear the word grace, what comes to mind? And I think of somebody I went to high school with whose name was Grace. Right? I think of the song Amazing Grace. We say the word grace over and over again. I think of my wife who displays grace to unbelievable depths to both me and to my kids. Grace is this favor that we get that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. It's unearned favor. And the center of Christian grace is Jesus. And what he did on our behalf, the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. It doesn't say, when you were just good enough, when there was a high enough percentage of people on the earth that were okay, then Jesus died for them. No, no. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is grace. And so in verse 13, Peter centers our hope on the grace of Jesus. But he centers it on the grace of Jesus that is still to come. So the people that are reading this have already responded to the grace of God demonstrated in the cross that has brought us into relationship with God. But Peter says, hey, if you think that's good, wait until you get to receive the fullness of it when Jesus returns. Oh, man. And so hope for us that have received the grace of Jesus is forward thinking. It's, in fact, hope is always forward thinking. It's always an expectation of something that is still to come. But in our case, the reality of hope is based on God's previous ability, previous promises that he kept. We know that when he says something, he's going to do it. So it's rooted in what God has done in the past, but it also is forward thinking in what God has said he will do in the future, the promise of heaven. When I was in high school taking driving lessons, I remember uh, initially when I got in the car and I was on a windy road, I was looking right down at those curves. I remember my driving instructor saying, no, 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 that's not what you do. You look ahead as far as you can. And I was like, no, no, I got to look right at the curve right in front of me so that I know how to navigate it. 
an instructor over and over said, your, your eyes are in the wrong place. Look ahead. Look ahead. He said, she said, trust me on this. And so finally, as I began to trust her and look ahead, I went, huh, that's odd. I'm just naturally following the curves. Now, those of you that have been driving for years, you maybe forgot about this. But that's the trick, to really navigate the, the curves properly. You don't respond quickly to the curve in front of you. You look ahead. And so what Peter is trying to do is saying, hey, times are tough. Life is full of obstacles and challenges. But keep your eyes forward. Keep your eyes firm in hope, in the grace of Jesus that is still coming that we can still anticipate. Wow, what great news. Does life look chaotic for you right now? Is it hard to see around the bend that you feel like you're in in your life? We have a firm hope in the grace we've already received and in the incredible grace that is still coming. So Peter goes on and he he starts with this firm hope, really reiterating what he had said earlier in the letter. And then he challenges us to use this hope as a launching pad for how we live today. And this launching pad is to be active in holiness. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Over the years, the word holy has become synonymous with some sort of uh, religious piety. And it's often used as a derogatory term. I don't know if people still say this, but if you are trying to live in a right way, or maybe you're trying to even impose your morals on somebody else, people will say, oh, you're just being holier than thou. Uh, you're, You're just above everybody else, and you think everybody should be perfect like you, right? So whenever we hear the word holy, even in church, these cultural... Uh, kind of derogatory uh, explanations come into our minds. And so, if, if, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you read the word holy, you just keep going. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to linger very long on that word because I don't really want to be holy or I, I don't want to be that type of holy and I don't even know what it means anyways. And so we just keep going on. <laughs> so what does it mean to be holy? <laughs> if Jesus said to do it, we should probably listen up a little bit more. And we should actually probably let the Bible define what being holy is. Holy. In the strictest definition of the word, it means to be set apart. To be different. Which, oh man, here we go. Do we really want to be that? Holiness, though, isn't just an attitude. But it's an identity. Uh, This is so important for us to know as we understand biblical holiness. It's not just an attitude, it's an identity. When Jesus calls us to be holy, it's a call to live into this new identity that he gives us as what? Obedient children. Part of the family. And this is something that Jesus gives us. Jesus gives us a new identity. So our holiness is not bound in our righteous list. And this is where we get confused sometimes. Oh, to be holy means I have to do the Ten Commandments and I have to do this thing and I have to dress a certain way and I go to church. No, holiness is a desire to be like Jesus, to be a part of his family. I loved uh, the famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, holiness is the visible side 
of salvation. Holiness is the visible side of salvation. In other words, it changes us. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, our identity changes. The way that we talk and we act and we walk changes. Many of you know we've adopted two kids. And both of our kids, they had to learn what it meant to be a part of our family. The ways of the Fouché family. The things that we do, the small things and the large things, the value that we place on each other, those are family traits. And so it's our hope, my my wife's hope, is that when you encounter one of our kids, you will see visible demonstration of the values of our family and our kids. Now, they're not perfect. We're not perfect. But there are certain things that are unique to who we are. So holiness is the visible side of salvation. Every human being, we've heard us say this, is made in the image of God. Every human being. But only those who have placed their faith in Jesus are children of God. Only those that have come into the family are sons and daughters. And this is one of the keys to understanding holiness. From a biblical perspective, our holiness is rooted in our identity as his children. So being holy like Jesus is holy means that we are separate from every evil. So when we talk about being separate, set apart, it's just moving away from this old life, this old identity. And that we reflect the values of our new identity when we become part of his family. In what? What are we, what are we reflected in? Well, in all we do. And this is a challenge. Wait, 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 wait. So I separate myself from the evil things in what I watch on TV? When I do, when nobody's looking? I I, I thought this was just about church. I thought this was just about singing some songs and nodding my head to the preacher on Sunday. No, Jesus says, I want you to be like me in every aspect of your life. And I'm going to be honest, there are points in our lives where this is a problem. This is a a problem because we don't always want to be like Jesus in every aspect of our lives. But we also have to remember, sometimes we just feel incapable of doing that. I, I, I just, I, I, I fall and I stumble in the same way over and over and over again. How could I ever overcome this sin? How could I ever move away from this evil desire that just seems to be ingrained in me? And this is where the language of the Bible is so key when Jesus says he gives us new life. We are born again. It's a restart. And we remember when we look at this language that we are not on our own. As we're taking those steps, Jesus is with us. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is what makes holiness possible. So don't believe the lies that you've you've come far enough or I'm just too set in my ways. And don't base your holiness on the version of you from a few months ago. Well, not as bad as I used to be. I've done that. We've all done that. 
Well, you know, lust isn't as big of an issue as it used to be. Was it still an issue? Well, yeah, but it's not. Hey! We are, all of us, a work in progress, and Jesus, by his grace, wants us to live more and more fully into our identity as his children. And one of the, the couples that I've been blessed by so much in our church, and they're not here this morning so I can talk about them, has been Herb and Kathy Hegel. Many of you know them. They are, uh, they've been a part of our church since the 60s. They've been faithful in so many ways. And one of the things I have seen from them is the desire to continue to learn and to grow. Last year, we had a, a seminar on Saturday on how to study the Bible. And Herb and Kathy came. And in my mind, I thought, well, they should be leading this class. <laughs> Why are they here? They, they've led Bible studies their entire lives. And here they were sitting going, I wonder if there's something more that we can learn. Herb was on our leadership team a few years ago when I, I shared about a book and how to share our faith called Conversational Evangelism. And I was sharing with our leadership team. And I said, hey, this is a good book. It's a great resource. Next thing I knew, Herb had bought the book. He had read the book. He had had a conversation with one of his neighbors because of the book. And then at one of our end-of-the-year meetings, he says, hey, everybody should read this book. What a beautiful example of ongoing Becoming more like Jesus, active holiness. Such a beautiful example. So if Jesus is our standard of holiness, then we recognize that the call to be holy like he is holy is a lifetime journey of following Jesus. And let me say this, let's make this really clear. The call to holiness is not a call to a no fun, religiously stuffy life. I had a conversation with somebody some weeks ago. He says, hey, I'm really interested in getting baptized and following Jesus. Can I still drink if I do that? And I thought, where does that come from? But it, it comes from this idea of like, if I follow Jesus, what am I going to have to give up that I enjoy doing? And sometimes the answer, let's be honest, is yes. You do have to give up some things that are destructive and that are evil. But Following Jesus and becoming more like him is the opposite of bondage. It is freedom. Because following Jesus means that we are then set free from the grip of sin. And each day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're moving further away from it. Proverbs 11 says, The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. So whether it's a discontent attitude that causes you to cheat your way to power and wealth or secret internet sins, evil desires are always a trap. And the call to pursue holiness is the way out. It's a call to freedom, to walk fully in our identity as sons and daughters of God. So if you feel hopeless and helpless to live how Jesus called you to live, remember that he goes before you. Be holy what? As I am holy, follow me. It's simply the call to walk out your identity. I love this quote that I heard. I don't know who, who said it, but the quote is, Satan knows your name and calls you by your sin. God sees your sin and calls you by your name. And that's the promise we have as his sons and daughters. He, he knows when we mess up. 
And he loves us. And he doesn't say, oh, you, lusting, lying. He is no son and daughter. Come on, follow me. Walk with me. No freedom. So Peter exhorts all of us to be firm in hope, to be active in holiness. And then in verses 17 through 21, he says that we're to be reverent in our fear of God. This, these verses really continue with this same call to holiness, but they root it in the powerful actions of God's redemption for us. This redemption that God is the one that paid the price. He's the one that pursue us, pursues us and makes things right. And so Peter reminds us not to take the power of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, not to take that for granted. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here with reverent fear. The fear of God is the understanding of who God is and what he's done. That he is a father, that he is a redeemer, that he is the overcomer. So when our faith is placed in him, we have hope. So in order to really understand the call of holiness, we have to have a right view of God, his great love and his amazing grace in our lives. And I think, honestly, in the American church, that in an effort to move away from the like angry doomsday kind of street preachers, that we've often swung too far and we've adopted this like, Jesus is my homeboy type of Christianity. Where like, yeah, like I know God's all powerful stuff, but but he's cool with me. Like he's just one of the dudes. And in doing that, this this type of Christianity has effectively shrunk the greatness of God to, to put him on par almost with us, and it's softened the holiness of God, and it's cheapened the grace of God. There's a, a, a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who coined this phrase, cheap grace. And he says this, he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It's a, hey, you'll be okay, just keep trying whatever you can try. And so our centering truth on the holiness of God is his greatness. And so the fear of God for us is not a, a fear that moves us out of relationship with him, but one that actually draws us closer because we see how awesome and holy he is, yet he loves us, yet he extends grace to us. It's this reverence in, in our relationship with him. Second Corinthians um, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. 
perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So God is the perfect Father. He neither minimizes your sin or casts you away from Him because of it. Instead, He says, My son, my daughter, do you see that? Do you see how evil and corrupt that is? How that it's leaving you empty and alone? Do you see that I I cannot let that sin remain? Not in you, not in society, not in my creation. Let me take that sin from you. Let me break its power. Because I love you, I will deal with it. This is a promise for us personally, and it's a promise for us at the end. The grace of Jesus that we still wait for involves God once and for all dealing with evil in this world. And then God says, this is how I'll pay the price. This is how I'll remove this sin from your life. I will take it on myself. I will pay the penalty for it. So you don't have to. Because there's nothing that you can do to get it away from you anyways. Only I have that power. And this is what Jesus came to do. What an awesome God we have. We're to revere him and to love him as he loves us. And so finally, one of the key evidences, one of the last things that Peter exhorts us to in our growth in holiness is how we love each other. He says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. If you have kids and one of your kids does something wrong, I have three boys and so it's usually one of my boys, tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry. (laughs) Tell her your sister that you love her. Love you. This is probably why Peter says what? sincere love for each other. He wants to make it absolutely clear. This needs to come from who you are and what you really believe. And that that doesn't mean you're always going to feel it. Sometimes we love people and we don't like them, right? (laughs) But that it is sincere in who, who they are as our brothers and sisters. When we pursue holiness... We desire to walk out in the spirit-led sanctification personally, but also in our community. And this community sanctification starts first in our homes and in our churches, but then it radiates out to the spaces that we occupy, like our neighborhoods, our schools, and our workplaces. D.L. Moody says, A holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they only shine. People can see this love. Jesus says they'll know you are my disciples by what? Your love for each other. This is why for us as Sunset Community Church, one of our kind of primary value and mission statements is to love God, to love each other, but also to love our city. And so toward the end of the passage, our passage this morning, Peter names five areas that are an enemy to a community growing in holiness. 
Maybe as you read these, you, uh, let me see, I guess I don't have, oh, there we are. He has, gives these, these areas, and maybe as you read this, you thought, okay, it's another list of morality, uh, how we're to live as Christians, but these are specific sins that affect a community. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. All of these sins affect the community of believers. They destroy a community. They have the ability to do that. Think about in your own life how envy has caused you to look at somebody wrongly or how slander or gossip has destroyed relationships. So these sins, they're incompatible with the people who are desiring to be sincere in their love. And so as we think of these four challenges... Going to the songs here. Jude, can you put up the four challenges for me? <laughs> as we think of these four challenges, we don't want to file these away as the, as the Christian moral checklist. Because nobody here wants to slide into that, we look good on the outside, but man, on the inside we're a wreck, holding to some sort of checklist. Instead, the heart of this text is based on our identity and the awesome grace of God we're to hold firm to. So to hold firm to hope, to be active in holiness, to have a proper reverence for God and to love each other. And so in your life, when the road is curving and the times are tough, look up to Jesus. He is our tangible expression of God. Verse 21 says, Through him you believe God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. And so as these things are demonstrated and made real by Jesus, our challenge as a church is to be holy. To not be afraid of that phrase. To grab a hold firmly of our identity as his children. And to walk in it. And to remember also that our sanctification is both an individual and a community process. And so as we, as things start to ease up in the days ahead, as we can begin to regather again, let me encourage you to, to be involved in each other's lives, to be a part of a community group where you can really pray for each other and be known and know each other. Let me encourage you to, to, to seek out relationships. In a, in a time, our culture is already isolating us before the pandemic. And for so many people, that, that isolation has just become deeper and deeper. And so this, this community, this Christian community, all of these things that Peter exhorts us to are, are for the community, not just as individuals. I don't want you to go home and go, okay, here's my four, four you know, checklist of four things that I have to, to work on. No, what I want you to go home with today is to know that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that he is leading you into these things, that these are part of your identity. And the end of our passage today ends with Peter using the analogy of a, of a newborn. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so this statement brings up two questions that we'll close with. The first question I want us to close with today is, what are you feeding yourself spiritually? 
what are you feeding yourself spiritually? We have some new babies in our church. Does anybody know how often babies eat? Only on Sunday for an hour. No, about every two hours. That's why when you see new parents, they look like zombies. Every two hours, this child needs to eat. So we need to, we need to ask ourselves, how are we feeding ourselves spiritually? How is our identity being reinforced by the things that we're consuming, that we're involving ourselves in, that we're thinking about on a daily basis? And the second question that I want to leave us with is, have you received the saving grace of Jesus? You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You simply have to turn to him to say, yes, Jesus, I I see how apart from you, I I can't overcome this sin. Owning a house doesn't do it. Owning a nice car doesn't do it. Getting this degree, getting this job. None of those things are overcoming my own sin, my own loneliness, my own depression. My own de- None of those things are working. Lord, if you are who you say you are, will you free me from my sin? Will you speak a new identity to me? Will you give me new affections and desires? And the answer is always yes. God is always saying yes. I've been waiting for you to realize that, to see that, to come to me and to know who you truly were created to be. So have you received the saving grace of Jesus? If you haven't, when we dismiss here in a moment, I want to pray with you to receive that. So would you stand with me this morning? We're just going to close in prayer. If it wasn't COVID time, I'd have everybody hold their hands. But I want you just to take a look around for a second. This is the community that God has placed us in to work these things out. His Holy Spirit is here with all of us, guiding us. And as we bump into each other, and as we deal with our own remaining sin, God's goodness and grace is evidence in the people around us as well. So let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you for your love for us that you don't leave us alone, that you are not silent, but that you speak today. And I pray that you would have have spoken to each of us through your Holy Spirit as we read these words. These ancient words that were distributed to churches a long time ago that are still being distributed to the churches today. We thank you for preserving them for our benefit. Lord, would you call us to holiness, to be a church that is like a lighthouse, in the neighborhoods, in the communities, in the homes you placed us in. And Lord, I pray specifically for those that have not received your grace this morning, that they would see you clearly, that they would receive your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.